as a Buddhist and as a Buddhist minister, I, I've always known I'm going to die and I don't know when. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. But being on the palliative floor has helped me really, really understand that. That to know you're dying means you, you can treasure this moment because you just don't know. This is Francis Garrett. In this episode of Footnotes, we're going to hear an interview by an undergraduate student that was done as part of a course I taught at the University of Toronto. Yuvina Persaud is a fourth year student in her last year of undergraduate studies. She double majored in Near and Middle Eastern civilizations and in religious studies. In this episode, Yuvina interviews Joanne Yuasa. Joanne was born in Japan and immigrated to Canada with her family when she was four years old. She grew up then in Vancouver with her family. And although she was not raised in a temple, she started attending a Vancouver Buddhist temple in her adulthood at the recommendation of her therapist. Joanne was so inspired by that experience and the teachings that she made a commitment to become a student of Shin Buddhism and then eventually to become ordained in 2012. Along the way, Joanne received an Associate of Arts degree in Peace and Conflict Studies, then a Bachelor's degree in Asian Canadian and Asian Migration Studies, as well as Religion and the Arts. And she then completed a Master of Pastoral Studies at the University of Toronto and the Toronto School of Theology, specializing in Buddhist spiritual care. While Joanne was in her master's program, she was recruited to be a Buddhist chaplain in the Royal Canadian Chaplain Service of the Canadian Armed Forces. In this interview, she talks with Yuvina about her work as a Buddhist chaplain in a hospital, especially working in a palliative care unit. She talks about her experiences of uh, working with patients who are dying and about her own uh, sensibilities and how they have changed um, about death and dying herself as a Buddhist chaplain. Um, so I just wanted to thank you for taking your time to talk to me. I'm super excited about this conversation. I love your energy. Like you just like, I don't know, you're happy and it makes me happy. Oh, that's very nice. Thank you. I'm really excited to, um, to, uh, hear your thoughts and, um, yeah, see what the questions are going to be. What are some ways that caregivers can provide emotional comfort to the patient? So in uh, chaplaincy work, which is the more, I guess, commonly known word for spiritual care, the most important thing I've learned about spiritual care and being with clients and being of service to clients is that it is their time and it is all about them. And that often means the focus is all on them. So to comfort for me means to witness and to acknowledge, to see what they are really feeling. Um, that might not come out in words for them. It might not be, you know, particular, like, ex like really explicitly being mad or sad or happy or whatever it is. But what I'm, what I always try to do is to listen to them deeply which means not just listen to the words, but, you know, make sure I, I'm following their body language, their facial expressions, the kinds of words they're using, and try to see where they are emotionally. And then um, to, 
to be, to hold that for them. I think that's the first step in, um, in comforting someone is just to say, I see you, I see you, I hear you. And, uh, if, you know, if it need, if it needs to be said to say, I'm here for you, what can I do? When do you start hospice care? That's a really interesting question. It's, I mean, I guess it would, it depends on the case and, you know, the dynamics of that person's life and the family life and things like that. I know there is a specific definition for hospice and I believe hospice and palliative thing uh care are different when that I, would be a hard thing to pinpoint because yeah it depends on the situation I think what happens when a patient decides to forego treatment foregoing treatment that's kind of related to the topic of euthanasia slightly there was somebody on on the palliative floor that I work on um and one week she just, she's already on the palliative floor. So she knows, you know, her, her time is um, limited. And one week she had, she was just declining. There is a process in death is something really important. I learned on the palliative floor and um, she was declining that week. And by the end of the week, she said, you know, this is it. I, you know, call my family. I want to see my family. I'm going to say goodbye. And I don't want these things to happen. And she was put into palliative sedation, which means they medicate her and make her comfortable um, so that she kind of drifts away. So that was one experience I had, but I've also experienced, I don't know if it's accompanying, but I know of a family and their grandmother was also declining and she said i i don't i don't want to eat anymore i don't want to do anything anymore i really just want to go you know her she kept saying things like her husband was calling her um who he had he had already passed away and she said i'm just tired i want to go and so then she requested um to have made and the family agreed or uh yeah listened to her wishes and they went through that process i think we we generally tend to we value life so much in our society right we value youth we value vitality we value um health and living it's hard to encounter people who say this is it I have no more I I can't stand this anymore I don't want to say I understand where they're coming from but I always want to honor this person's um experience I'm maybe I know I can say this because it's not my own family members right it's not like my partner or my niece and nephew or you know brother or mother or whoever but I hope if that ever happens to me, I would have the strength to to respect their wishes and not push them. 
because treatment can also be difficult, you know, physically difficult, it, you know, the side effects of things and whatnot. So I try always, always so hard not to judge a person's um, decisions because they know themselves best. They know the dynamics of their family best. They know their bodies best and their minds best. So again, I just, I think I, I just try to hold that space for them and respect what they're going through. Um, what is included in palliative care? Like what kinds of treatments do patient re- do patients receive? My theory is you go in there to do anything they need. There are the typical things you would think of. Some people want actual prayers. They want you to read prayers for them. There are, you know, last rites and all of these things. I try to always meet them where they are. That care can come in a lot of forms. So I think what we try to always do is to help them feel connected to um, something bigger, you know, people, community, feel cared for, feel connected to other people, feel connected to the care that they're receiving. And that comes in a lot of different forms. Like I specifically, I remember one patient, he uh, was declining and the I didn't know he was going to die, obviously, um, on a certain day. But the day before he passed, I was in rounds and they said, oh, he's, you know, not got very long. So I went to go see him. And a lot of it was just sitting with him and letting him know he wasn't alone. He was not very communicative. Like he couldn't talk much anymore. He had very little energy. So I sat with him. I asked him, I I had remembered that he uh, had very fond memories of going to Jamaica. He always talked about Jamaica. And so what I did was I asked him if he wanted to, you know, contemplate on Jamaica and I played for him uh, the sounds of the beach. So like waves crashing on the shore. And I said, I, I found like a clip on YouTube or something. And I showed him because I we have iPads. And so I, I said, if you want to look, um, here's, here's some video of like a beautiful Jamaican beach. And he smiled. And then he said, you know, I said, if, if you can't, if it's uh, too much to keep your eyes open, just close your eyes and you can imagine Let's just listen to the waves and, you know, imagine your toes being in the sand or uh, the warm water and the sun. And so we sat and listened to that for a little bit. And I just got the sense that, you know, he had no more energy. And so I thanked him. I always thank him for his time. I thank them for their time. And I said, goodbye. And he said, all right, see you around. And then I found out that he passed away the next day. I'm not saying that I don't particularly know if that changed him in any way or if it made anything, you know, quote, better for him or anything like that. But I think that as a chaplain, those are the kinds of things that you can do to make them feel um, not alone and connected to things. What I found, what I found really interesting is 
because folks in palliative care are not always so communicative, as in like they can't talk, they can't. So a lot of times, actually, a lot of your work is with the family. So it's being sitting with the family, the daughter or son or whoever it is, partner, they feel a lot of big emotions and distressing things. I can't say what it feels like to be a family member, but they are also appreciative. They, they share a lot of their appreciation for the health team, the healthcare team, that there is a team of people who are supporting them, not just in the physical sense, their loved one who's passing, but in all other aspects too. Like, you know, there's a social worker who helps to deal with other things. And then, you know, chaplains come in and we do spiritual care. And then the other part is um, the healthcare staff, the nurses and the doctors are very, very appreciative because when you're a chaplain on a floor, you're not just dealing with the patients you're also dealing with, or you're encountering the healthcare staff. And so a lot of the work on a palliative floor, I think is for the staff who have to deal with it, like even more intimately than we do. Cause these are people who care for these folks yeah. day out sometimes for months and they they form really close bonds and then when they pass even though we all know it's happening it can be very very difficult so if there are benefits I think it is the fact that there's a team of people you're not doing this alone you're you're with you're with other people and and you're getting support um, so you talked about like comforting families um like how like what are some ways? Um, that you've done that in the past for the patient, like the pa- the patient's family? A lot of it is sharing stories. There are times when the family is not there. I, al- I always try to have a story or an anecdote of um, something that happened when they weren't there. So when I see them, I can say, oh, the other day your dad did this <coughs> or, or something. And that lets them know that they're not alone, that their dad or mom or whoever it is is not alone. So I think that is a bit of a comfort for them. And again, just letting them express themselves, um, whether it is anger or sadness or sometimes it's guilt, all of those really hard emotions, witnessing that and holding that and making sure they feel heard. So um, if a patient requests like a different religious prayer, do you also do that? I personally don't have a problem at all with reading a prayer for somebody else, but I do let them know that I am not of that tradition. Um, and I also have no problems whatsoever going to find somebody of that tradition that can um, recite the prayer for them. Um, are there any rituals that like you've been asked to be completed in the past, either Buddhist or like not Buddhist? Outside of the palliative floor, in our tradition, we have uh, a practice where we do visit folks who are, we call it the pillow side service, uh, where we go to, I mean, basically the deathbed of someone, somebody who is actively dying, as in like they, they have maybe days to live. And we hold a short service 
the family comes together. We hold, we set up a little um, altar next to the person and uh, do a chant. And we chant some text and do the other things like light incense, if it's okay with the family, um, light candles. And uh, the minister will give like a really, really brief talk. That That's not to say our tradition uh, requires that for any sort of outcome in the person's death. It's not required doctrinally, but <laughs> we do it um, out of, I guess it's out of tradition because those kinds of rituals are helpful for families mm-hmm. to go through and to mark this, the, the death it's, is very important. So we, we do have ritual but I've not had to do it at the, on the palliative floor where I do my practical. Um, so what are the patient's fears usually? Um, if, if you have any, what are yours? The ones that I remember most are folks who are leaving behind family. People worry about, especially if there are younger children as not like children, but even, you know, like teenagers. And I don't know that I've heard many people say they are afraid to die directly to me. But the things that they do express to me are, I'm worried that my son or daughter, blah, 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 blah. So going back to things about like, what can we do to comfort them? We do, we, I've done things like, you know, help people write letters to their children so that they can read in the future or um, help people record their life story is another thing so that their children can read in the future. Things like that. To me, like the ones, I don't know if it's, they stick out the most to me or if it's the one I've heard the most is it's about who they are leaving behind. Will my husband be okay when I'm gone? And am I worried? I'm not worried about being dead, but I'm worried about how I will die. I don't want pain. I don't want to suffer. And But I think that's common to all regions of my life. I don't want pain and I don't want to suffer. So I hope those things are not there. I would, I don't want to say I would love it, but ideally if if I just died in my sleep, that would be ideal. But what are the chances of that? I, I can't say. So to me, it's always a balance of, I think about it. I think about my death a lot in being on the palliative floor, being a minister, I do think about like, what would I do? Or how would I be if I were in this person's shoes? So being on the palliative floor and doing ministry work is really valuable in the sense that you do, you are faced with these things that many, many people don't think about at all. Um, And so I do get to process these ideas about illness and death. And I, I could say like something really cool, like I'm not scared of it or whatever, but I mean, come on, like the reality is 
of course, that's the most fearful thing because fear comes from the unknown and that's the biggest unknown, really. How do you avoid getting attached to patients? Or like, would you say that you avoid getting attached to patients? I do not avoid getting attached to patients because like I said, I was walking like, not empty, but blank uh, with no expectations. I always am mindful of, you know, this is my job. Like this is my profession. I'm a professional in this space. And that naturally creates a bit of a space where I don't become too attached. However, I will also add that because of my personal mental illness, because of my social anxiety disorder, I have a natural way of not getting close to people, not because I don't not want to be close to people, but I tend to keep people at arm's length anyway. That's part of my coping um, thing. So I think that that naturally spills over into my professional work. So while I respect 100% everybody I encounter in my chaplaincy work, and I value each encounter and I value each person, I don't necessarily feel close to each of these people. In religion, there's a lot of talk of love, Mm -hmm. right? Love is a big thing in religion, as it should be. It's an important thing, and it, it brings comfort to a lot of people. I always say I can respect everybody, but I don't love everybody. To me, they're kind of different things. That kind of thinking that I have keeps me from getting too close to patients, rightly or wrongly. I don't, I don't know if this is the way it's supposed to be, or I know people who have been on palliative floor, work on palliative floor, and like they cry when people pass away. And of course, of course you do. Like, I understand why I'm just not wired that way, whether for good or for bad. I don't know. That's just the way I am. Are there any lessons that you've learned working on the palliative floor that you would like to share or something that you've learned from a patient that you think is important? I think what I want to take away is that um, knowing that you're going to die is very valuable. It puts things into perspective. And uh, what's interesting to me is we, we talk about people on palliative floor, they know they're dying and they have limited time, but so do we. We know we're dying too. We know we have limited time. We just don't know when. And for people on the palliative floor, it's just more immediate. As a Buddhist and as a Buddhist minister, I, I've always known I'm going to die and I don't know when. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. But being on the palliative floor has helped me really, really understand that. That to know you're dying means you you can treasure this moment because you just don't know. Like, I don't want to waste time. You know, I don't want to um, take for granted that uh, I'll see my best friend again next week or whatever it is. So I do 
value those encounters more. Do I always? No. But on occasion, I'll be like, oh, you might get in a car accident on your way home. Like, this might be it. I don't dwell on it, but I think it's just kind of brought that, it bubbles up more than it used to. So I, I learned to treasure time more. Not only do I treasure life more in general, I think I also, I think I treasure myself more. Not, and this is not just because of palliative floor, but, uh, but also just through the, the process of training to be a chaplain and becoming much more religious because it is the center of my career. There are so many humongous things in our lives and in death that like, I've really learned to let go of the small things, you know, like uh, I'm, I don't worry about, Oh, does this person like me? Is that, you know, what did she mean by that? Or like, why didn't that person, you know, like my Instagram post, like it's, I've learned to let that shit go and to focus my attention. I try to focus my attention more on the kind of quote, bigger things in life, like nurturing relationships and, you know, my professional skills and making my life more. um, How do people usually choose or want to live during their last months or weeks or days even? So in the hospital I work at, I do, or where I do my practicum, part of it is a hospital in which there's a palliative floor and I'm assigned to that floor. There are other, there are also um, another part of the, where I am is a long-term care home because it's a senior's home and it is, it's a geriatric hospital. People I encounter in my, in my, in my practicum are all seniors. I think people don't want to be given up on. I think people want is one thing. Like, I hope they don't forget about me. I hope they don't give up on me, which leads to like, I hope they haven't forgotten about me is another thing. Folks just want to be valued to the, to the end. 